growth is hard, and and even a company like Slack is having amazing growth. It's still hard, and and some of the things that that I would encourage people who are starting or who think they're at that hockey stick inflection point. If you do not have measurements in place to measure how your users are using your product, you're flying blind. Welcome to Array Podcast, the platform to discover hacks and skills you need at different stages of building your business. I'm your host, Shruti Gandhi, founder and managing partner of Array Ventures. Array Ventures invests in founders focused on solving problems, leveraging big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Visit us on array.vc. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by First Republic. First Republic is a full-service commercial and private bank focused on delivering world-class service across U.S. to the VC space and has been a preferred choice for VC funds, startups, and their employees for over 30 years. To learn more, visit www.innovationfirstrepublic.com or email Samir Kaji at skaji at firstrepublic.com. In the podcast today, we'll hear the story of a college dropout, but not the glamorous Steve Jobs type story you might expect. Learn how Leslie Miley worked his way up through engineering roles at Walmart, Odesk, Apple, Google, Twitter, to become director of engineering at Slack, one of the Silicon Valley's most beloved startups, and find out what he's up to now at Venture for America. How did you get here? And... These are some amazing brands. Did you go to some good Ivy League college and, uh, you know, prep school before that? No, no. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood. It was a working class neighborhood. Uh, I uh, did pretty good in school. It wasn't a great school, but I was in high school. I was able to do pretty good because it wasn't good. Uh, I uh, went to the University of Kansas uh, for a short amount of time uh, and then dropped out because I, I honestly didn't know how to study, and I had no habits, so less than two years of, of university, and I dropped out, came back to San Jose, California, where I grew up, uh, and was told by my mother that I couldn't live there unless I worked, so I went out and got a job. What job did you get? I was a security guard um, at Apple, of all places, and I would uh, work the graveyard shift. I actually worked the swing and the graveyard shift, so that was 4 to 12 and 12 to 8. And the 12 to 8 time was when I would roam the Apple campus and meet um, programmers who were programming late at night, and they would teach me things. That's awesome. And that's how you learn programming? That's how I have learned programming before. Okay. That's how I learned the nuances of programming and, and more high-level languages. Because when I was growing up, you know, your high-level high level language was basic, right? And, you know, you maybe would see some assembly language. Um, and then I started getting exposed to more high-level languages. That's amazing. What happened next? Um, well, people want to know how you got to all these amazing uh, positions, doing, you know, working for companies that they would love to work for. Um, try really hard uh, and keep keep going. I, honestly, you keep you do keep going. I I didn't like. I learned how to program. I sat in front of a bunch of computers late at night with a bunch of neckbeards. Uh, and I'm sure they're still at Apple in the exact same queue, strangely enough. But but the the reality is that you don't get a job in you know tech by doing that. So I actually took a sales job, and uh, 
And the sales job was interesting. It, I figured I could probably do that. I knew technology. I knew it was a technology sales job. Uh, but one day, uh, because it was a small company, it's probably like five people, uh, the, uh, they, they, they don't let me in the office. And they said I stole something. And, and I'm like, what? They're like, you stole some equipment. And I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I, can't I just, why is this happening? And, and I'm, I'm literally shocked. And they're like, we know, we know you have a drug problem. And they're telling this to me. They, we know you have a drug problem, so you know, give us the equipment back and we won't call the police. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I was, I was shocked, right? And I'm standing outside this office. There are people in front of the door. They're not letting me in. They're telling me I'm a thief and they're firing me and they're not paying me. They're like, we're not even going to give you the pay we owe you. I'm like, this really sucks. Uh, and, and I go back to the, the apartment I was uh, sharing with somebody at the time, and I get a call. Um, that same day, from the uh, from this admin at uh, at Symantec, uh, who I tried to sell the, the equipment that, that we were selling to, and I just kind of like poured my heart out to this person who I don't know, and she said, "Hey, we're hiring for you know tech support. You think you could do this?" And I'm like, "I know a lot about technology," so that's how I started. I got a job as, as contract tech support at Symantec. Thank you, Leslie, for sharing that. I'm getting goosebumps from just listening to this story. I can't imagine. Oh, it, it hurts to say. Yeah. I mean, I think about that. I just remember being just like, I'm, I'm going to be living on the street, be selling used cars, doing something. Wow. Um, that's I have no words. But thank you for sharing again. I so then you started working at Symantec, selling selling these. Software. Well, doing tech support for tech their, their antivirus yeah. products, uh, moved into testing. Yeah. Because that was a, like your career path when you have to a tech company. Go through tech support, then do testing, and then go do something else. And, and and some really interesting things happened. So this is back in the day when we still had floppy disks. Those of you who may remember those. What is that? Yeah, I know <laughs> exactly. What is that? And uh, they were never really that floppy. And, <laughs> and, and what... It's like it's strange. Like your your life just takes these strange turns. And I've been doing really really well. Uh, I had created one of the first automated testing suites that that you know in, in the company at the time. Uh, and we were running a, a program sending evaluation copies of a new antivirus product out. And I ended up sending 250 uh, evaluation copies out uh, that were infected with a virus that the bot antivirus product didn't catch. Talk about a career limiting move. Wow. Um, and was summarily fired. Um, however, the director of the group intervened on my behalf. Uh, told this is the CEO fired me too. The CEO who did this one all the way up to the CEO because I sent it out to like all their largest customers. So the CEO fires me. The director of the group uh, steps in on my behalf. Uh, explains how I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I'm working really hard. I'm running really fast. I have to be allowed to fail, so I'll learn. Does this sound familiar to anybody yet? Um, <laughs> and and sure enough, you know, it really it really helped me. I mean, one, it kept my job, and it actually set my career in an accelerated mode because you realize that you have to be careful. You realize you have to take chances still, but you have to take calculated chances. You just can't be stupid about it. So, uh, and you know, and and being young, we get to do that. Um, but it was like one of the first lessons I had about failing and failing hard. Are you still in touch with the director? Yeah, he's retired now. I, am I telling too, too much about my age now? He's retired. Uh, lives on the East Coast. So when I go to New York, I, I generally have dinner with him. 
uh, and we reminisce, and he brings up all of the the embarrassing things I do <laughs> as a twenty-something-year-old uh, in, in, in a large company. Do you, you know, I'm going to ask a very specific question because it it it, it comes up a lot um, for me. Is do you believe in uh, a sponsor, an organization, or in a in, in a profession for you who can stand up for you like this? I mean, for you, it happened unknowingly, but do you did you then go out of your way to cultivate such sponsors in the industry um, to help you along the way? It's uh, a two-part question. So I, are sponsors necessary? Entirely. Uh, if I did not have a sponsor, my career would have ended at that point, and I don't know what I would have done. Uh, have I cultivated sponsors since? Strangely enough, no. Because I think a couple of things happen. I think I advanced very quickly early in my career. So that was number one. And then number two, I started realizing that um, there's a lot of bias uh, against who and what I am um, based upon my lack of education, based upon my ethnicity, that it made it very difficult to find people to look past that. And, and so trying to find a sponsor and a mentor who could understand what it's like to be an African-American when there are no African-Americans in engineering, was really, really difficult. For example, it was a decade before I worked with another African-American in engineering who was at a level higher than mine. So, so I've gone the majority of my career without a sponsor. Uh, but, you do, but you do recommend people work on developing one. Definitely. Yeah, yeah you have to. You have to. It, you can get far on your own merit, but if you don't have someone there who can advocate for you, don't have someone there who can tell you when you're wrong uh, and tell you when you need to stop doing something. Uh, it, it's going to get it, your your advancement will stop. It will just stop. So okay, I, I want to go through um, what happened at, at you were at Symantec then, and you were doing support. What? How did you get from there to today? I want I want us the, the audience to know a little bit more about that. Uh, great. How did I get How did I get there? Um, <laughs> I, you know, you're, my, my career has gone like like two steps forward, one step back, three steps to the right, <laughs> one step forward, two steps to the left. That's pretty normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, most people think, oh, you do this, 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 this. But mine has just gone all over the map. So it's a good lesson. Um, it's, Life it's, is not linear. It definitely isn't. And don't expect it to be. And be open to other things. So I, I took... It hurts, though, when it does happen. It hurts. <laughs> it, it, it hurts... Uh, and this is why I tell people, I'm glad I don't have a lot of ego attached to the, some of the things I do now. Uh, because when you have ego attached to them, you make some really interesting choices. Uh, so um, I did the semantic thing. I left semantic, um, did a bunch of startup companies. Just you know, and, and when you do startup companies that are started by your friends, they generally don't last too long because they're your friends and they don't know what they're doing. They're the people you work with. And, and so um, I was just kind of working my way through called QA or the testing test engineer track and so I was like you know uh, test engineer or actually Q QA engineer you know test engineer senior test engineer staff test engineer and then somebody says oh you're a really good leader you should go into management <laughs> that's normal yeah it was like oh you're a really good engineer yes yeah, so go both which I, and I'm like okay I know <laughs> no and I should apologize to if anybody who I managed my first management job <laughs> I'm sorry but, uh, I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> Uh, How big was that team? Uh, it was like six people. At that time? 
Nice. Six people, and I, I know I just you know, made every management mistake possible. And then when you were at Slack, how many, how big was that organization as a director of engineering? Uh, my organization, probably with engineering only, was about 18, 16 to 18. So, um, you know, but there's also product management, yeah. uh, product marketing, testing, yeah. design. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you, you learn that, and then you learn that you have to start learning how to manage. You have to start learning about people. Um, and uh, it's like trying to think of, of a good place for this. So in, during the dot-com boom, when I, I just really become a manager and I started at this company, it was the eighth employee called Impulse Buy Network, uh, run by, um, started by a gentleman named uh, Mark Goldstein, who's, mm -hmm. uh, who's an investor here now. Uh, Richard Ling. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, Richard Ling, uh, who's another investor. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were doing the first ad serving, targeted ad serving technology for web mm -hmm. in 1998, 1999. And, and, and if we had gotten that right, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I'd be on my own island uh, because that's how Google makes yeah. the majority of their money today. Uh, and, you know, did the, like the QA manager thing there. We were acquired, had a really good exit uh, by a company called Inktomi. And that was fun. Stayed in Inktomi for a while. I call Inktomi the proto-Google for those of you who uh, have been around for a while. Uh, they really set the tone, I think, for what Google became culturally and from a technology mm -hmm. standpoint. Uh, spent a couple of years there. Uh, spent Y2K sitting in, uh, in the Inktomi headquarters, making sure things didn't blow up. Um, and then took a job at um, a company called HomeWarehouse.com that was acquired by Walmart.com. Mm -hmm. And spent several years there as a senior director of quality assurance, mm -hmm. building out that, building out you know the first, uh, you know essentially e-commerce 1.0. Yeah, uh, really exciting, really fun. Uh, took some time off after that because it was a grind. Uh, working for Walmart is a grind. Working hard, yeah. Um, uh, took some time off. About a year and a half later, came back, joined a company called Odes. I was the third or fourth person. Strati Karmalakis and Odysseus Tsatsalos. Uh, don't ask me to say those names again. <laughs> I hope you're watching and give me props for getting those names right. Uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, that, that was an interesting lesson because I, I firmly believed in what Odess was doing in, in opening up uh, labor markets outside of the United States for, for work and having people here be able to utilize that. Um, however, we, we had a philosophical difference on on what the company should be, and, and and I learned for the first time that if you are not aligned that early on in your organization, you either have to get aligned or you have to get out. Uh, a company has to have everyone in alignment when they're starting. Uh, the company has to have everyone in alignment when they're getting funded, and and if you're not in alignment, you know, you're really putting the company at risk. And and it, it that was a lesson I learned there, and I ended up leaving the company before I wanted to. Uh, and going to do something else, which which turned out to be actually pretty good. <laughs> um, I left there. I joined um, a Joe Krause and Graham Spencer at Jotspot. Uh, Joe Krause is now running GV or running parts of GV, which I think is great for him. Uh, Graham is there with them. Ken Norton was there, the product guy. Everybody knows Ken. Uh, and and I learned in that instant that it wasn't the product; it was the team. Mm -hmm. If you have a good team, your product does not need to be an A product. It can just be, it can be a B, C, D, E, F product. Uh, but if you have an A team, they can accomplish a lot, and and that really taught me a lot. 
uh, and we were acquired by Google shortly thereafter, which wasn't a bad thing. Uh, spent some time at Google. Uh, there, are some le there are some lessons and some stories in Google during 2007, 8, 9 that um, are interesting because it's Google going through the financial crisis, but yet still seeing this amazing growth. Uh, left Google, went to Apple, joined a, former co-workers from Walmart.com mm -hmm. building the Apple online store. Had uh, great success there. Apple, as many of you know, is a great organization, but they work you really, really hard. I, uh, Walmart to Apple, same thing. Yeah, pretty much. You're pretty used much. to it. Pretty, you think you are. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but Walmart was hard and, and, and difficult. Apple was a whole different game as far as expectations. And it's expectations you put on yourself because you see everyone else doing yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I said this in, a, in an interview a while ago. Like, they worked you like it was 1862. It was a really, <laughs> <laughs> a really difficult environment. Uh, and and I would get called. My first week, it was like my first week, it was like the third day I was there, I got a call at 1130 at night. I, I haven't even figured out how to log into most of the services yet. Don't call me at 1130 at night. I was watching I Am Legend or something. So... <laughs> Very specific so, memory. I, because I remember getting a call at 1130 at night on a Wednesday since we're having problems with the release. And I'm like, I, I, I don't even know how to remotely log in yet. Don't call me. Uh, spent, you know, some years there. Great work, great team. A lot of good relationships that I, I will always cherish. Um, but left because I was traveling a lot. I had uh, three teams, 150 people in India. Uh, it just, it was a grind. And, and I, needed, I needed to try to get some work-life balance. And then what happened after Apple? Uh, took a little more time. Uh, I call people, like, for those of you who have like worked really hard, maybe had exits or maybe had failures and you need some time off, but you think you just dive right in, and then you take your rebound job. Um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a rebound. And so I, I joined a company called ModFlaw uh, here in San Francisco. ModFlaw? ModFlaw. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Eric Koger, Eric Susan yeah. Koger, uh, great people. Uh, it just wasn't the right role for me. I thought I could do e-commerce. Because um, you were at Walmart. Yeah, yeah Walmart, sure. Apple. I can do e-commerce. Yeah. You know, let's leave. But it just wasn't, it wasn't, it was a great product, and and they really were not not at the point where um, my skill set was going to be used. Yeah. So so I was going to, going to, was going to take some more time off and figure out what I wanted to do, and I got a call from Twitter. Um, this is a free IPO Twitter. And, and I was really blunt with Twitter saying, I don't want to work at that company. <laughs> Because they're, the reputation of the company precedes. It, it's, people say it's an entitled company. It's a hot mess. There's a lot of politics. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, I am at a point in my career where I want to go someplace where I can work, make an impact, and don't have to worry about some Game of Thrones before Game of Thrones. <laughs> and and uh, the CTO at the time uh, said, uh, when I talked to him and gave him my concerns, he says, I understand it. We have those concerns, too, and we're getting rid of those people. I'm like, I can talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I like your bluntness. I like how open it is. And so I went and spoke with him, spoke with the team, and they convinced me. And, you know, met Dick Costello. Totally. I mean, Dick can convince anybody of anything. He has just a, just a great personality, great, great leader. And, uh, and joined, and they, sure enough, were trying to turn it around. And, and there, there, were, there were sayings that, you know, they were kind of getting rid of old Twitter, turning into new Twitter. And I think for several years, they were successful, and it was a really great place to be. Um, I... And so at Twitter, did you face any challenges that you think if you would have solved at that time, 
would put Quinn in a different position today? Wow, somebody did their homework. Um, <laughs> somebody did their homework. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing. It's, I'm laughing until the audience, if we're still alive, I'll tell the audience. Um, that's a loaded question because there's like a half a dozen things I could probably name. I think I think one of the bigger ones, at least was central to me, was this. Don't start small. Uh, no. <laughs> it was, it was abuse. Uh, I mean, abuse of Twitter has been a problem for forever, right? Probably the third tweet was an abusive tweet. I mean, it, it's just the nature of the, the platform. And I really think if that had been tackled sooner, uh, it would have put Twitter in a much better place. And, and, I, and I believe, I firmly believe, one of the, the main contributors to it not being tackled is that the people making the decisions on what to tackle had never suffered abuse on Twitter. And if you don't suffer abuse on Twitter, you really don't understand what abuse on Twitter. And if you've never suffered abuse on the internet, you totally don't know what that means. And you know, to, to keep it real, as, as I like to do, the majority of the people who created Twitter were white men, and white men don't get abused. I was just on about internet. to get I was just about to ask you that. Yeah, they don't. And 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 I'm not blaming them for being white men and not getting abused. I'm just saying they don't get abused, so how do they know the use case? And 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 that was that was if there was something I think I could change, it would be to fix that early. Because I think Twitter is a transformative service that uh, that is hampered by, you know, by by its issues with abuse. What about the UI, the the, the character limit, all of the things that are just too late? Where do you think it goes from? I don't. What are you able to share? I, I you know, tw Twitter's kind of. I'm trying to think of like what is it like. Um, it's it's like you you don't want Twitter to go away. Yeah. Because Twitter has such an ability to be a a continue to be a transformative yeah. service, powerful for, for, change for maker. Yeah. Everybody, right? Yeah. For, I mean, from from the president on down to. You know, <laughs> we to, know to, that. Yeah, we, we know that that very 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 <laughs> intimately. Uh, and and I just don't know where they go. Um, I don't. It's it's really it's difficult and it's difficult to watch. Yeah. Because you know I, I see things like I mean it's like Twitter's this this, this weird animal of, of in tech where you see all of the positive that it does with Black Lives Matter movement. You see it you know how it brings to light issues how people like Milo can get you know can get banned from Twitter still go and do his thing but you know also be taken down by people tweeting out you know some of the more heinous things that he has said. You know, and then on the other hand, you know, you see the alt-right using it with ruthless efficiency and effect uh, to propagate their, their stories and their fake news and their propaganda. Uh, and and you, you wonder how you can, you can keep the service around because it is so important, particularly with the political discourses going around, around the world. It's just not here, right? It's in the UK with Brexit. It's in uh, France with, uh, what's her name, Le Pen. Uh, it's happening in Germany, you know, with their, their rise of nationalism there. So, so this is all being played out on Twitter, and and I think it needs to be a place where people come together and have this discourse. But instead, it's become a place where people just weaponize their tooling to shout the other person down. And the other group. Now, is this an engineering problem or is it a philosophical problem? Yes. Both. It's, <laughs> it's, well, I mean, it's an engineering problem. The some of the uh, the new features they put in place. For abuse, uh, I think are great, and those are engineering problems. I also think there's a philosophical aspect to it. Uh, you know, people are like it's a free speech platform, and I'm like, you need to get over that. 
It's yeah. not a free speech platform. No. It's, it's a platform that you have that people can exercise speech. Uh, there is no right to be on Twitter. There is no, you don't have an obligation to, to keep your Twitter account open. And, and I've been very vocal that the Twitter account that, in my mind, that needs to be shut down yesterday is Donald J. Trump's. Let him tweet from POTUS. Let him you know, do everything from a government account. Do not let him use his bully pulpit um, in a manner that gets people abused and gets people threatened. And he has done that. And if he was any other account, he would have already been banned. And, and I, I, I call on Jack and I call on everyone at Twitter who's looking and listening to this to think very, very closely about and look very closely at whether or not him having a personal account is actually in the best interest of the country. Oh, wow. That's, uh, thanks again for sharing that. And I know a lot of people share that sentiment. Um, I think Twitter to me has always just been like a high school clique <laughs> where you form your group and you boost each other's egos and it's very hard for an outsider to come in and 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 have their voice heard um to me are you talking about the people working at twitter or the service the service <laughs> yeah uh, you know what i'm saying yeah i know it was formed back i know yeah. I, I i know what you mean yeah. um subtle joke here <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> But I also feel that that's why um, a lot of my peers that are women, I don't find them there. Um, you know, anyway, I can keep going about that. Um, all right. So, and then, so sounds like you learned a lot and took that to your new, amazing, shiny job at Slack. <laughs> and you designed it really well <laughs> to, to take care of those engineering issues you you couldn't work on. So tell us more about it. Everyone wants to hear about Slack and your journey there. And it's one of the fastest growing B2B company in the world. I mean, so yeah, Slack is, Slack is an amazing company and it's not for the reasons that I think people want to think it's amazing. <laughs> um, I, I had, I had interviewed quite a few companies, um, after leaving Twitter and some of the big ones like Facebook, um, some not so big ones. And, the reason that I went to Slack is is not because of what they were doing from a technology standpoint. It wasn't because uh, they're the fastest growing B2B company, that they have this cool messaging tool. It was because the philosophy of the CEO, Stuart Butterfield, uh, was something that resonated with me, which is he was building a company based upon inclusion. And he was building a company based upon belonging. And, and I walked around the office and I saw more people that looked like me than I had seen in any company I'd ever worked at. And, and that resonates. Uh, it resonates because uh, it's hard to be the only something. Uh, I have been the only black engineer. I've been the only black engineering manager. I've been the only black director. I've been the only black engineering director. <laughs> you know? and it's like, I'm tired of being the only. Uh, I really want to work with people who look like me who are my peers. And, and Slack offered an opportunity for that. And, and I think the product is, is amazing. I use the product every day, multiple times a day. I think it's the first or second thing I look at in the morning before I get out of bed. I'm sure everyone wanted to know that. Um, I probably look at my cat before I look at something else because he's trying to wake me up. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, it's, it was, it's that, that was more important to me at this juncture of my career than working on the new cool technology. 
Because at the end of the day, a messaging product isn't new cool technology. <laughs> We've pretty much figured this out. But tell us that's exactly it. So then why did Slack have such success over all the other messaging products that have tried to do that similar, um, I guess, goal, accomplish similar goals? I, I, that's a good question. And, you know, maybe it comes down to the environment that they create that expresses itself through the product. Uh, I mean, you know, we used HipChat when I was a Twitter, yeah. and HipChat is a fairly boring product. Yeah. Uh, you look at Slack compared to HipChat, and you're like, Slack looks fun. Slack looks a little playful. Yeah. Slack looks a little more engaging. And, and I think that stems from the type of environment that is, is being created there. So we were talking to Justin Kahn, um, and we, you know, I asked him if, if it was creativity that differentiates him. And I think he made a point about how um, people get tired of seeing the same thing, and not, there has to be like a new trick in the in the hat that has to come out. And you and Slack, I think, you know, most enterprise software was boring. <laughs> you see this gray, blue, white colors, but Slack was fun. It says it has good design. You think that has something to do? I'm just trying to crack I, the billion dollar question right here. I, 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 I mean, I, I think it. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's all of the above. It's, I wish I wish you could just boil it down and sell it to people because that's what I would be doing now. Um, but I do think it's it's if you Slack, I, I like to kind of roll back and say Slack has a really interesting interview process that services people who, in, in, at least in engineering, that were self-aware and had a lot of empathy. And and you know, let's be honest, most large engineering organizations are really lacking empathy, mm -hmm. I mean, and they're lacking a lot of self-awareness. I mean, I've been an engineer my entire adult life. I've been in these environments. You know, I, I'm not going there to, you know, get my feelings, uh, you know, supported. And, and and I think that Slack being different in that respect shows up in the product. Mm -hmm. I think it does show up in, in a product that has an emotional, that people have an emotional connection with. And, and you know, they have a, an emotional mm -hmm. response to the emojis. I mean, I never thought I'd get to the point to where I just now answer people in emojis. I mean, I've had entire conversations. I can't wait emojis. to get emojis from you. Yeah, just like, you know, thumbs up, you know, thumbs down. You know, and, and I just love it. It's like, this actually looks like my hand. I know. Apple, thanks, Apple. Yeah, it's like I now have, like, you know, emojis my color. It's great. It's like I, don't, I don't have a, like, a, like a banana emoji. Everything's yellow. Uh, and and I, think, I, think people, I think that resonates with people. I think people see things that look like them. I think they see design choices that don't look like a bunch of college guys put it together yeah. and threw it out there. So when Slack went through this inflection point of being really viral, what are some of the engineering issues you faced um, that, that you want to share with the audience here? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> growth is hard. And, and even a company like Slack that's having amazing growth, it's still hard. And, and some of the things that, that I would encourage people who are starting or who think they're at that hockey stick inflection point, if you do not have measurements in place to measure how your users are using your product, you're flying blind. You may think that people are rushing to get to your door and you're gonna like convert them and you're gonna like put money in the bank, but if you can't measure where they're at and what they're doing, where they're falling off and where they're having difficulty, it's very difficult to, 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 to modify your product. Um, and and that's something that you know I learned in Slack is that if you put your experiment framework in very early, uh, you can make course adjustments before the shift gets too large to make. 
Uh, if you start collecting your data and storing it and being able to run data analytics on it early, you're setting yourself up for success. If you try to do this, you know, after you've reached a certain point, you're going to be missing a lot. Sounds like this is a story that um, was very memorable. What was that metric that you were talking about at Slack? That oh, she was like drill in. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm let you go. I, I've got a lot of friends who still work there. I don't, I'd like to keep, uh, maybe keep a little bit. Well, it's more just for people to learn from me, right? I, I think it's. It, it wasn't any one metric. It was realizing what we didn't have. What was that? Um, the metrics. At what point is this? Is this like five months into the company? No, five years into the company. It was it was much further along than than I I I had suspected and expected, and 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 but it makes sense, right? I mean, you you have to like look at a growth in the company, and there are always trade offs you make when you're going through fast growth. And some of those trade offs are we need to do these features before we need to do this. We need to do these features before we need to do this. And I'm not sure if anybody's ever gotten that right. The The way I look at it is that you're probably always going to be a little bit behind the wave. And if you can just stay close enough, you're going to be all right. You know, but if you get too far and, you know, like the, the saying, too far over your skis, I don't ski, I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it sounds good. Um, if you get too far over your skis, you know, you, you're going to end up crashing and burning. And and I think that, that we were able to to figure out what we didn't have soon enough uh, so that it didn't cause an issue. Now, was it the engineering team and product team working well together? What What do you think that worked well there, that, um, that made that prioritization? I think it was engineering and product working really well together. Yeah. Uh, actually, engineering and marketing. and data science. And data science. Data okay. science, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I give a lot of, uh, a lot of credit to uh, Sarah, who runs the data analytics team for growth at, at Slack. She, just, she did an amazing job. You know, product marketing under you know Kelly is just do an amazing job. Uh, they really you know have done uh, done, done good work. Uh, you know, Jules was the PM for growth when I was there. He did a really good job of, of identifying how we could update the mobile products to actually catch up with the growth. You know, the conversion, the growth on, uh, on on web. So so yeah, it's like it's a really it was a really good team coming together solving solving the problem. And so then growth happened and and. You're scaling. By the way, what what is Slack's um, stack? <laughs> you know what the stack is, and I, I love saying this because it, because we're probably gonna get all this engagement out. Those of you who think it's anything special, it's a lamp stack. <laughs> uh, nothing new, nothing special, nothing revolutionary. You know, good old lamp. Everything works. It scales. Um, you know, when AWS was down, S3 was having issues. They had issues as well because file storage is, you know, on S3, so. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it's a very, it's not a, like, it works. And, and this is, this is a, another piece of advice I'll give all you young people out there. Um, the new hotness is sometimes not the best thing to do. And if Slack can make a product like Slack on a lamp stack, um, you do not need the newest JavaScript framework. So, you, so you, you don't think we need Slack? We could just use the <laughs> I, I, You know, I, I, think, I, think, I think if you build something that people yeah, use want it, yeah. and, and they want to use, it, you know, yes, you want to use something that's scalable. Uh, you want to use something that has a deep uh, bench of professionals that mm -hmm. you can draw upon to, to hire from. And you want to use something that has a, a lot of support in the industry. Um, 
And this is and the, a lab stack does have all of that. And so it's not hard to find people. It's not hard to. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I mean, an important point, right? You it, want to hire people who've had all this experience and not just learning new languages. Yeah, yeah. people who've spent time with it. And, yeah. and I think that also helps when you look at things like diversity and mm-hmm. you look at things like inclusion. If you Your pool becomes wider if you you know are not using the newest hotness, right? Because most professionals who have been doing it for five, six, seven, ten years don't have time to keep learning a new language every six months. But the guy right out of school who's been looking for a job you know, the mm-hmm. woman right out of school is looking for a job. She can, like, help. We're going to, like, yeah. learn all of this new stuff. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm babbling now. So, um, again, so back to, as an engineer, as part of the engineering team, what were some one or two things you solved um, that that you would recommend engineers, other engineering teams, to be careful and mindful of as you hit certain inflection points in the company? Was oh. it, like, good code review methodologies? Was it... Right, like that—that—that's. I mean, yeah. There's just, and, and I'm I'm trying to unpack. All I'm putting of that you on the spot. Sorry I'm, about that. No, it's 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 good because I'm a lot of it, and I'm thinking about it because my mind is exploding about what I want to talk about. Because I can talk about yes, you need to have good code review. Yes, you need to have good unit tests. You know, yes, you need to, um, you know, put in metrics for for you know like like how many, um, you know, how many different changes you want. You know, but to me, it really comes to it's something a lesson I have to keep learning sometimes because I, I think I forget. It's like really investing in your people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can do all the engineering things right, but if you're not investing in your people, uh, you're not going to have. A what does that team. mean? I think it's investing. Do you in, have an example of what you did specifically? Or maybe what I didn't do specifically. Um, I think it's really taking an interest in in how people are growing their careers and and giving them a path forward. Um, it's something that. I, having been in so many different environments, uh, you sometimes lose sight that what works in one environment doesn't work in another. And so like at Apple, you know, people were very much uh, in charge of their own careers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a fairly well-known path of how you get from, you know, this point to this point to this point and advance in your career. And so people would be responsible for their careers. And and so I developed this... um, developed this saying that you are responsible for your own career. I'm here to help you facilitate that. Uh, At some other companies, it's not like that. Sometimes you do have to say, here is your career path. Here are the checkpoints. Here are the things we need to do. Let's work on this. And that was something that that is like a lesson I have to learn is I have to keep learning. I have to keep learning that when you go from one company to another, you can't necessarily take what worked at one company really, really well and apply it to another company because it doesn't. And that's from an engineering perspective. I don't know how it works in product. Don't, don't, Don't apply it there. From a, an engineering-specific standpoint, um, I would say if you don't write tests, uh, you probably shouldn't be writing code. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's doing collaborative coding now. We're all doing social coding. It's pretty boring, though, <laughs> to write tests. It's, it's boring, but let me tell you, you're not going to be the only person who What about documentation? That, your test should be your documentation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she set me up for that question, right? Um, and if you're not doing it, people come behind you, and they, they shouldn't have to spelunk through your code mm-hmm. to figure out what it is. It should be well documented. There should be tests. You should know when something fails, you know, because your test fails. You shouldn't have to wait for it to get to production and suddenly what happens. So now, how closely did the engineering team work with marketing teams? Because marketing also has a good magic formula at Slack, which if you know that that has created what what it is today. 
Well, it's like is that the, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like the marketing team and the engineering team. The marketing team, the product management team, and the product marketing team were really close together. Uh, they were all very. It, I mean, it was it was so the. At some companies, they call it EPD, like the three-legged stool, engineering, product, and design. Mm -hmm. In Slack, it's engineering, product, data science, design, product marketing. Uh, Basically, you're a big, happy family. You try to be, right? Yeah. And you try to get everybody together and, and really stay... And how many people was it, by the way, just to take a pause, how, well, when you left, how many, how big is Slack? Oh, when I left? I think Slack was about 900 people when I left. And what, how many was it when you joined? 600? 550, 550, 600? I think they may be over a thousand now. Okay. So um, definitely. Still a pretty efficient team. Yeah. It's it's yeah the company runs lean. Yeah. Uh, and and I and I, I particularly like that. I mean I was shocked. Somebody said Uber has eleven thousand people. Is it the drivers too? No. no. Oh. What are eleven thousand people doing at Uber? Can somebody tell me what eleven thousand people? <laughs> if you know, let me know because and I, what do eleven thousand people do? <laughs> Well, you should go there and find out. No. Pretty sure. <laughs> sure. I, 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 got, I, I got quoted in The Guardian about, about Uber. They don't, they don't like me anymore. <laughs> so um, back to engineering and marketing working together. Tell, tell us one ex good example that was a good happy marriage of um, marketing really being enabled. Because oftentimes you talk to market CMOs, lead marketing at companies, and they go, you know, the engineering team just doesn't want to work with us on the newest growth idea we have. So what was it at Slack that you, is that one or two things that really made a difference in the company, I, in the trajectory at company? That's a really, that's a really prescient question. Um, so my, my role at Slack was a director of engineering for growth. Uh, and part of growth was growth marketing. So uh, I worked really closely with the, the growth marketing team. And, and for me, it was really, Making sure they are trying to make sure they had the resources they needed to, to uh, kind of accomplish what they needed to accomplish, uh, because the marketing site is different than the product mm -hmm. site. So, so it was really I think important for me, you know, leading the group to make sure that they had what they needed to make the changes and and to to and I, I'd like to say it was important for me more like I found a person or I you know, like literally fell into my lap an engineering manager who had done specific work like that before at Google, who just became an amazing leader for, for product marketing, for, you know, for doing engineering for product marketing. And, and I found that that partnership needs to be as tight and as close as your partnership with product management, your partnership with design, your partnership particularly for growth, right? Because they drive the traffic to us, right? To, and so, so while we can convert, we're still hoping that they are doing, or they should be doing the, the work of bringing people at the top of the funnel. Um, to change gears a little bit, because I can keep going on about Slack, and, and our audience would love to keep hearing about that, but now you're doing something completely different. You are an um, entrepreneur in residence at um, Venture for America, and I want to hear, and by the way, I'm on the West Coast board at Venture for America. Full disclosure. Yeah. Full disclosure. <laughs> um, so tell us, tell us how you made that shift, and what are you trying to accomplish with this career change? Um, I, I, you know, I don't look at it as a career change. Um, and I made the shift because uh, <laughs> because I want to make America great again. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I said it. Uh, and I do want to make America great again, and so should you. <laughs> and Or maybe we just need to make America great, period. Um, 
And, and I use that term because after the election... Can we consider stand-up comedy? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but not in the red states, no. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I have some really bad red jokes. No, I, I just... The, the election was... was was eye-opening for a lot of people, and and I really do. I really want people to think about not you know what's wrong with people and why do they vote against their own self-interest? Because in a lot of ways, as we're finding out with the repeal of, of the ACA, that people did vote against their own self-interest. But why would people vote against their own self-interest? They would vote against their own self-interest because they are hurting. They're hurting economically. They're hurting in their communities. And why are they hurting in their communities? Well, they're hurting in their communities because they, the economic opportunities they have are few and far between. And why are there economic opportunities? I mean, so you just kind of go down this yeah. rabbit hole, and then you just realize that what happened to them, and when I say them, I mean many people in manufacturing towns and coal mining towns, uh, what happened is something that happened to me and my family, which is my father worked at General Motors here on the West Coast uh, on an assembly line, putting together cars, and when manufacturing started shutting down and moving offshore, Mexico uh, or being automated, uh, he lost his job, and he never really worked again. And the our entire neighborhood was pretty much a factory neighborhood, and I saw us go from you know fairly solid middle class manicured lawn neighborhood to houses boarded up, lawn dying because you know they don't grow new grain here, uh, lawn dying, <laughs> uh, you know, and and crime and blight take over, yeah. and. And, and I realized, you know, I mean, and that was in, over the course of a few years, and I realized that if that happens, you know, all over, people get desperate. I mean, I know how desperate we were, and I saw some really bad things happen in my neighborhood uh, over the years when, when that was going on. I mean, you had a story, but... Oh, I, I, got, I got a lot of stories. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, you know, to, to, to not, to, you know, just to kind of maybe put a, you know, f firm... And, and just how bad it is, you know, my father went from being, you know, a the major breadwinner in the family, taking care of, you know, two brothers and a sister all, you know, so the four of us total, to being unemployed and uh, becoming a substance abuser. And, and you know, as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, you know, I had to go and find him in crack houses. And, and this was my father who lost his job. This is my father who had no hope. And, and, and there are families and communities all over America that are experiencing this right now. And, and part, part, you can see that partially by the opioid epidemic that's happening. And because people don't have jobs, because people don't have hope. Mm -hmm. And so somebody came and said, I will give you what you had. And there was a great article, it was a sad article, it was a great article uh, as a nurse practitioner in West Virginia. And she's, she's talking about the repeal of the ACA and how it's gonna impact this community. And this person is saying, who has all these health problems, he's in his 50s, he has all these health problems, but he doesn't care if Obamacare gets, gets repealed because he'll be able to afford insurance once the jobs come back. And I'm like, so first of all, you probably couldn't work in a mine now if you, if, even if there were jobs, and they're not coming back. And, and so, so that's a long way, long-winded way of saying, I have this belief that if you can help improve economic opportunity in areas that are disadvantaged and underserved, that it will open people's hearts and open people's minds. Will it make them want to vote for Hillary Clinton? Probably not. Will it make them more uh, amenable to having a discussion without it being us against them? I think so. And, and I think that you can do that with what I term as the greatest economic 
hadn't seen in this country in the last 50 years. You know, we, we are looking at an unemployment rate in Silicon Valley of 2.8%, uh, which means that we're past full employment. They consider full employment 5%. Uh, and, and these are not all gig economy jobs. These are high-paying jobs. And, and if we can replicate you know, what's happening here even a little bit somewhere else, uh, and I think the executive and residence program at BFA is part of that. It's sending really experienced tech people into places like Detroit, Columbus, Ohio, Baltimore, San Antonio, Nashville, which is an amazing city. If people from Nashville, great city you have there, a lot of good whiskey. Um, <laughs> and music, I suppose. And work with the startup communities in those areas and help them understand how we do things here, learn about the problems that they're they're experiencing from a growth perspective and help them address that. Uh, and also start building a network with people outside of this. I mean, yeah. This is we're in a bubble. I mean this is a this is an amazing bubble we're in. You can just sit here and you could sit here and you think that the world is great. You know, I I am more than happy to take you to some places and outside of Richmond, Virginia and you'll you'll We'll change your mind real fast. So you're creating opportunities for people in Silicon Valley to go in these these cities and uh, work there for a couple years. I, I well for a year, like a year. a year. You know, six months to a year. Okay. I'd like to see people there a year. Uh, I'd like to see people take time to you know become part of the community. Uh, I think it's really important to, to see. I mean, there are problems being solved outside of Silicon Valley that are amazing that I personally would like to be involved with. There's Rodney Williams doing Listener in Cincinnati. Uh, there's a company called uh, Castle. They're out of Detroit, yeah. which, you, which you know yeah. about. Um, there are great companies. There's Kairos down in Miami. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to go to Miami, let me know. Um, these are these are these are companies that are that are are hiring. These are companies that could use uh, really seasoned executives. Denver. Colorado, of all places, one, it's a beautiful city. They're doing great work downtown, but they are actively seeking director and C-level talent from Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. This is what they this is what they're looking for, and and this is a great opportunity for us to to branch out, mm -hmm. and a great opportunity for us to get out of our bubble and see what the rest of the country is doing. Thank you, Leslie. This is phenomenal. Keep doing what you're doing because we need that, and thank you for being so real. Um, Thanks, guests, and I am Shruti on, well, at Shruti on Twitter, and how does one find you, Leslie? Uh, I am at Shaft on Twitter, and, and hit me up if you want to move to Cleveland. Um, I know you LeBron haters, but, you know, <laughs> tickets are cheaper there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.